Welcome to the Geographical Podcast, brought to you by Geographical Magazine, the official publication of the Royal Geographical Society. Each month, we bring you the stories that matter. With writers from around the world, we help you keep a global perspective. Published since 1935, Geographical has a rich heritage in monitoring and exploring our planet. Here, you can listen to excerpts from Geographical's monthly print magazine. But for the full experience, subscribe to the magazine today. I'm Katie Burton, Geographical's editor. This month, our long read is Mark Rowe's dossier about climate change in the USA. Mark looks back at the Trump years and the huge swathe of climate and environmental protections that were rolled back or neglected. He also looks forward to a new era which will see the USA rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement and rebuild legislation. In the second half of the podcast, we catch up with polar explorer Felicity Aston, who last year gave up a lifestyle of extremes for a brand new adventure. The Storms to Come Had John F. Kennedy been in the White House over the past four years, rather than Donald Trump, he might have updated his most famous call to arms and declared, Ask not what the climate is doing to your country, but what your country can do for the climate. It was, in fact, another North American, the Canadian former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, who came up with this phrase during a 2020 BBC Wreath lecture. Carney's call was directed to the international community, but it had a pointed reference to the United States. Much has been rightly made of the impact of our changing climate on the most vulnerable and developing parts of the world, where economies and peoples are least able to cope and sit in the crosshairs of extreme weather and rising tides. But the US is not exempt. Last year tied with 2016 as being the hottest year on record for the US. In 2020, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the NCAA, the U.S. experienced 22 weather-slash-climate disaster events, where the losses in each case exceeded $1 billion U.S. dollars. These included one drought, 13 severe storms, seven tropical cyclones, and one wildfire, and resulted in the deaths of 262 people. Over the past 40 years, the average annual number of such events has been seven, and have included some of the most notorious storms in recorded history, such as the superstorm Hurricane Sandy in 2012 and Hurricane Katrina in 2005, which saw hundreds of thousands of people in Louisiana, Mississippi and Alabama displaced from their homes. Since 1980, the total cost of such extremes exceeds 1.875 trillion US dollars. California had five of its six worst wildfires in 2020, while Colorado had its most damaging wildfire season on record. According to a study published early in 2021 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, The Changing Risk and Burden of Wildfire in the United States, more than 50 million homes in the US are now in an area potentially in the line of wildfires, a number that increases by one million every three years. The same study concluded that in some states, wildfires accounted for 50% of emissions of PM2.5, the fine particulate matters that can cause cardiovascular disease. 
the extremes are eye-popping, according to Dr. Rachel Cletus, policy director at the Union of Concerned Scientists. The US is as affected as anywhere. 2020 was relentless, she says. We had 30 hurricanes, 12 inland storms, we ran out of alphabetical letters to name them all and had to move to the Greek alphabet. We had floods, heat waves. This is not some distant, abstract, projected future. This is the here and now. The US may be rich, she warns, but its poor are as exposed to climate change as any of the world's poor. It's not just rich versus poor nations. The climate crisis is deeply inequitable, even within nations. In the US, it is people of color, the poor who suffer most. During the wildfires, poorly paid agricultural workers had to work outside and gather the harvest, even though breathing was difficult. It seems that just about the only positive consequence of 2020's year of extremes is that more Americans are finally persuaded that climate change is real. The impacts of climate change have been so clear that they have changed the politics, says John Kirkwit, Global Climate Policy Director at the Sierra Club. The surge of hurricanes, the wildfires, the flooding, simply overwhelmed Trump. His administration appointed people to power with really fringe views, but the public saw with their own eyes what was happening, whatever the deniers were saying. Above all, it seems it was the fires that brought an immediacy to people's perceptions. Overnight, these transformed local economies caused land erosion and led to water contamination. San Francisco had days when it was as dark as night. People had to park their cars the right way to make swift getaways if they needed to. Their experiences with fires and floods was unsettling and reshuffled their lives, says Kirkwood. As a general rule, it's true that people in developing countries don't have the resilience to climate change, and you see large-scale migration and conflict. We don't see that in the US, but what is true is that the impacts of climate change have changed people's views. Yet, even as the extremes of 2020 were being played out, Cletus notes, we had an administration that was putting fuel on the fire. Former President Trump withdrew the US from the Paris Climate Accord. US pledges at Paris account for 20% of all the treaty's proposed global emissions reductions. But this was merely his most high-profile measure. For once, the now former president kept his word on climate change and confounded those who believed he would tone down the rhetoric and listen to science in the best interests of his nation. We thought he would just go after climate change regulations, says Betsy Sutherland, a former director at the Office of Science and Technology at the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA. But he sought to maximise the profits of his donors and went after any regulation that they wanted to get rid of. Water, toxic substances, clearing of contaminated areas. Even some industry leaders who might have benefited in the short term opposed these. A list of the actions taken by the Trump administration to thwart efforts to tackle climate change could fill this entire dossier, and is so lengthy that the Harvard Law School instigated a regulatory rollback tracker, extending to more than 80 measures, as each piece of legislation typically takes six years to prepare, almost 500 years of environmental work has been wiped out in four years. Trump emasculated the EPA 
which regulates carbon emissions and established carbon policy, while other standout actions include a green light for oil and gas development in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, weakening rules that capped toxic air pollutants from petroleum refineries, overturning rulings that regulation of mercury and other hazardous air pollutants was appropriate and necessary, rejecting proposals for caps on soot and fine particulate emissions, rescinding emissions limits for methane during oil and gas production and processing, and halting the Clean Power Act, which intended to cut carbon emissions from power plants by 32% by 2020 compared to 2005. Trump not only reduced laws on motor vehicle efficiency, but actively prevented states from implementing unilateral moves to increase mileage per gallon, thereby requiring his own voters and other Americans to pay more to drive. The list extends beyond direct climate change impacts, and other environmental reversals include the ending of endangered species protection for the grey wolf, rejecting protections for cetaceans and turtles in Pacific coastal waters, and permitting the hunting of bears. The wrecking of the Clean Water Act is regarded as a singular act of vandalism, for it removed federal protection for 50% of wetlands and 20% of streams from both development and water quality. There is now nothing to stop a company dumping toxic metals in our streams and rivers, says Sutherland. If a mining company wants to take the top off a mountain and dump it in a stream, it can. A gas company can dredge up a wetland to lay a pipeline across it. Coal ash has been widely cited as a major cause of river pollution, and 72% of toxic water pollution in the US comes from coal-fired power plants. Two further measures were pushed through in the fortnight before he finally vacated the White House. The EPA was banned from using medical and industry data to justify air and water regulations, which rendered such regulations meaningless, and Trump overturned an amendment to the Clean Air Act, known as the Endangerment Findings. The consequence of this was that medium-sized industries, such as plastic, chemicals, pulp and paper, were freed of limits on their carbon emissions. The past four years, says Dan Costa, former National Programme Director of the Air, Climate and Energy Research Programme at the EPA, has been like swimming with galoshes on. Costa resigned one year into the Trump presidency. Trump's team tried to remove climate from Costa's program title. There was an element of self-censorship. Words such as environmental change or evolution were used instead of climate in case you strayed too close to the electric fence. Such absurdities abound and Cletus only half jokes when she says her organisation had considered renaming itself the Union of Extremely Apoplectic Scientists. It's been an extremely harmful four years, she adds. The Trump administration was so deeply sceptical about climate change that not only did it roll back legislation, it actively put people in harm's way in front of climate change impacts. The net result of the past four years is that the US remains a huge polluter, emitting more greenhouse gases in total and per capita than most other nations. The International Energy Agency ranks the US as the second largest polluter, 
with 5.41 gigatons of CO2 a year, behind only China, which produced double that amount. And the fourth by per capita emissions, with 16.56 tonnes of CO2 produced on average by each citizen. US emissions caused by human activities increased by 7% 1990 to 2014, though since 2005 that pace has slowed. Natural gas exploitation is expanding, and the target of cutting greenhouse gas, GHG, emissions to 50% of 2005 levels by the year 2035 is way off track. Trump had sought to cut that target to reducing emissions by 1%. According to the US Energy Information Administration, in 2019, about 63% of electricity generation still came from fossil fuels, 20% was from nuclear energy, and about 18% from renewable sources. On a more positive note, Optimists have long asserted that decarbonisation was hardwired into the US energy system in a way that will ride out the ups and downs of short-term political cycles. This is certainly the case when it comes to coal. The transition from coal has been a phenomenon that has survived the best efforts of Trump and his administration, and as a share of total power generation, coal has plummeted from 48% of the mix in 2010 to 14% in 2020. The coal industry as a whole employs 160,000 people, but the number of miners has dropped from 90,000 in 2012 to 44,000 in 2020. The remainder are employed at coal-fired power plants and in distribution. Back in the 1970s, coal mining employed more than 250,000. In 2021, nearly three times as many people in the US are employed in clean energy as in coal mining. The solar industry is one of the fastest-growing U.S. economic sectors, employing 374,000 people and comprising 9,000 U.S. companies. Wind power supports a further 102,000 jobs. Trump did a number of symbolic things to support coal, but they did not slow down the energy transition, says Kirkwood. It turns out companies quite liked the making money element of clean energy compared to the headaches and losses of handling coal. They also saw brand advantages in being seen to be on the right side of history. That is a very powerful combination. Cletus describes this as an historic shift away from coal and points out that non-fossil fuels are approaching 40% of the whole energy mix when nuclear is included. She considers the most urgent attention is needed to address laws to improve fuel economy of motor vehicles and carbon emission standards for power stations. But, she warns, it's not enough to decarbonise the power sector. We have to do so to the transportation and housing sectors. Quite how long it will take to unravel Trump's legacy is anyone's guess. Kirkwood is relatively optimistic and believes the damage has been more political than actual. There's been an impact for sure, but it'll be reset over the next four years, he says. Yet, at the very least, the pushback against Trump will prove time-consuming. A lot of the stuff Trump did was actually policy guidance, and that can be overturned immediately, says Sutherland. But many elements of his legacy will take longer to dismantle, as most legislation will have to go through the court system. Even if the courts simply throw laws out as nonsensical, this could still take two years. 
Should the circuit, district, or supreme court think laws should instead be amended, the fuel economy of cars is a good example. Then preparing and changing regulations could take four years. Much of this will take us to 2024, but Sutherland does not see that as a setback. The difference with Biden is that he has this "build back better" policy approach. If we just got back to where Obama left off, then basically we'd only be at 2016 levels of action, eight years behind where we need to be. Using the new technologies and the public expectation, Biden can go much further than Obama was able to. The good news is that the Biden administration has already pledged to reverse many of Trump's actions. Biden has talked of a Green New Deal, and says that his plans will ensure the U.S. achieves a 100% clean energy economy and reaches net zero emissions no later than 2050. Biden has also pledged to take action against fossil fuel companies and other polluters who put profit over people and knowingly harm our environment. And poison our communities' air, land, and water, or conceal information regarding potential environmental and health risks. Kirkwood is encouraged by what he describes as a team assembled by Biden with climate change at the heart of security and economics. We've never seen that before. The recent assault on the Capitol may also possibly be a game changer. He suggests it's a wild card. It's not clear how the politics will play out, but it may finally lead to more bipartisanship. The political wind may just be changing too, he suggests. Biden ran on climate change. You have never seen a candidate do that before. He had everything thrown at him in Pennsylvania that he was anti-fracking; it would lead to job losses, but he won the state. Yet, with climate change still splitting broadly along political lines in a divided Congress, Biden has his work cut out, and it's worth remembering that Democrat presidencies have not always led from the front as much as the political narrative suggests. Biden has remained ambivalent on some coal, oil, and gas exploration steps, and while he has emphatically set climate change at the heart of his presidential campaign, he was careful to say he would only outlaw fracking on federal land in Pennsylvania, a state where most fracking takes place on private land. Barack Obama has made clear how he had to manage expectations ahead of the Paris Accord, and 40 states have reduced environmental jobs over the past decade. We can't be naive about the political realities, Cletus admits. Whatever your party, if you represent a deep coal state, you're going to have difficulty voting for a policy that cuts coal unless there are real viable alternatives and support there to replace it. It's not going to be easy. We still have a closely divided Congress. Biden will have to use his regulatory and executive powers and be able to reach across the aisle. The key. Says Cletus dryly, is a need for the new administration to be guided by the science. Climate change policies need to be mainstream. It's unbelievable that we even need to point that out. She admits, it's not enough for us simply to rejoin the Paris Agreement. We have to make up ground. Tone is important, and Biden might do well to emulate President Franklin Roosevelt's famous fireside chats of the 1930s and 40s. Suggests Costa. There's a perception that climate change is a liberal issue, but it's neither left nor right. Pointing to the way in which the military is preparing for climate change, 
some of the U.S. naval bases are already affected by rising tides, Costa wonders if there is a role for senior servicemen and women. If the military spread the message, maybe the idea gets out that tackling climate change is patriotic. The politicization of climate change bewilders Sutherland, who believes that, in principle, the opportunity to make money from new industries should instinctively appeal to the American psyche. There is an unbelievable amount of money to be made, she says. The richest human being in the US, and that's saying something, is Elon Musk, who makes electric cars. Yet Trump passed laws supporting 44,000 people left in the coal industry rather than building on the 700,000 jobs in renewable energy. As Costa points out, you have a whole suite of companies and R&D ready to run with new technology that is cleaner. We know that happens. We saw it with catalytic converters of diesel cars. Costa believes the new administration should not be passive. Obama's climate team used the word adaptation, which is an un-American word. It implies you have to be passive, that there's not much you can do about what's coming at you, which is not the American way. He also anticipates a more global America, with John Kerry, as international presidential envoy on climate change, coordinating efforts to support less wealthy nations to implement climate mitigation measures. It's so self-evident, but it makes sense because it means we pay less in the long run, says Costa. The effects and shocks of the fires of 2020 offer an opportunity for momentum, Costa adds, and should be acted upon because he is aware that people have short memories. In 2012, Superstorm Sandy was widely seen as a game-changer in terms of public attitudes, but progress since has not been as fast as required. They've got the public's attention right now, but the risk is that people have so much to think about, getting food on the table, homeschooling the kids, he says. Cletus described herself as stubbornly hopeful that the federal system will oversee the necessary transformation. I'm not in the unicorns and rainbow brigade of optimism, she says, but what's at stake is so profound, it's not a question of hope. It's hope backed up by action. We do have choices that can make things work. You can't just pay your way out of this. The next ten years are going to be absolutely critical. There's no evading responsibility. We have to cut emissions and build resilience. We are still regarding these extreme events as one-off disasters. We're not preparing ahead of time. Winning the case for climate change action that actually makes a difference will be difficult, cautions Kirkwood. At some point, someone is going to have to make decisions that require sacrifices of the American people, and it's hard to see that being enabled. The key may be a dawning reality that even the US cannot buy its way out of climate change impacts, that sea walls can only be built so high. Climate is the issue we're going to face over the next several decades, says Costa. We're a rich country, but we're in the firing line with everyone else. 30% of the carbon put in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution is going to stay there for 20,000 years, whatever we do. But I'm broadly optimistic, so long as we don't get tangled in the political vines of everything going on right now. The events at the Capitol in January 2021. Sutherland says the here and now of climate change will finally give impetus to public support. 
We can't keep doing what we're doing. Climate change is affecting every aspect of our lives, she says. We can't keep saying this is only something for those faraway countries. I truly believe 20 years from now, the US and the environment will be better off. While most of us spent 2020 bemoaning our lockdown isolation, polar explorer Felicity Aston and her family were deliberately choosing a more isolated lifestyle. Having bought the island of Viga in northwest Iceland when it came up for sale, they set about learning the age-old tradition of eiderdown farming, in which farmers comb the island and collect the rare and valuable down left behind by eiderducks. Felicity wrote about her experience for the March issue of Geographical. We spoke to her via Zoom from Iceland, so please excuse a few issues with the sound quality. I'm Felicity Aston and I'm a polar explorer turned now eider farmer in the north of Iceland. So me and my husband and my family have just taken on responsibility for an island in the far northwest of Iceland where wild eider ducks come to nest during the spring and we collect their eider down. And uh, this is a really old practice in Iceland and I've just written a piece for Geographical about our experiences in our first year on the island and taking on this huge heritage as well as the practical nature of of running an island that's right on the Arctic Circle. So for my previous life if you like I've been spending time of working first as a scientist in Antarctica and then putting together my own expeditions to go both to the Arctic and the Antarctic and they've had lots of different aims and objectives and purposes behind them. Throughout all of this you know I've used a lot of down clothing and not really thought about where that came from or the story behind it. Um, I knew that eider down in particular so down that comes from the eider duck uh, was the best type the warmest type the warmest material known to man and that's why a lot of sleeping bags and down jackets and down clothing are made out of it that are used by mountaineers and explorers and even astronauts apparently have, uh, have used eider down but uh, at the same time i was living in iceland and i stumbled across the story of eider farms and when you hear the word eider farm you think maybe it's like a sort of chicken farm where you've got lots of birds in battery cages or something but it's nothing like that it's a unique practice that is I think it's pretty much unique to to Iceland and parts of Norway and that's it uh, where these are wild seabirds that choose to nest close to humans so that they get greater protection from predators so the Ida farmers prepare nice nesting sites for them, but they're nesting sites that the birds have chosen themselves. They just sort of put a bit of extra hay in there before the birds arrive and they put out some water so that the birds don't have to go to the sea all the time to, to find water, so that water's closer by. And then they keep predators away, so mink, seagulls, things like that. And the birds benefit because uh, not only do they get protection from predators, but they get increased rates of hatching of the eggs and increased survival of the chicks. As part of the nesting process, the birds release down. So they don't pluck the down from themselves. It's released by a hormone. And, and they line their nests with this lovely, wonderful down to keep the eggs warm. And once the chicks have hatched, 
They leave the nest very quickly, within a day, and the eider farmers go round and collect the eider down that is left behind. So it's a wonderful sort of sustainable practice and a rare example of where man and nature sort of work in harmony rather than against each other. Figa is one of those places that when you go there, you remember not just what it looks like, but you remember the effect it had on you. You know, it's one of those places, but I can't quite put my finger on why. But regularly, people that visit the island say the same thing, that they get a feeling of sort of peace or serenity there, that it feels that you're very close to nature and that you're in a part of the Arctic that is very untouched. And, and so when I first visited Vega, you know, I, I got that feeling too. And the place that really stuck in my memory And then when I realized that it was being sold, I was instantly interested in the story because I cared about what happened to this place. I didn't want to see it sold to someone who would stop public access to the island, someone who perhaps wouldn't place a priority on the on the wildlife and the bird life that really thrives there. You know, when you finally exchange those papers and we made that first boat journey as a family with our little young son, who was only two at the time over to the island and then the last farmers left from the previous owners that was a real moment for both of us you know we sat on this island looking at these big seas that surround us on all sides in a big empty fjord where there really isn't anybody else there's six families in the entire fjord and we're the only one that is under the age of 80 i think so it was a real moment where you think okay this is the reality of, of what we're doing and in the two years since We've been constantly struck by that again and again and again. You know, things we did not realise were going to be an issue. But we've had to face it all with a good dose of good humour. I mean, we're permanently scared. We're permanently up against it. There's always a crisis going on. But we've managed to keep that sense of wonder and excitement and adventure too. And we regularly sort of laugh at the ridiculousness of it. You know, when I'm in my pyjamas in the middle of the night with welly boots on and a town jacket, sitting in a tractor that I don't know how to operate, desperately trying to dig out the boat that's torn free of its moorings and got shoved on the beach in one side. You know, moments like that, moments of drama and crisis that you just have to sort of look at yourselves and realise that this is actually very funny <laughs> and uh, and we will get through it you know in a better or worse state is yet to be seen but we will get through it one way or another our first summer we were absolutely terrified firstly that we've done something wrong that was going to scare away all the birds because it's totally their choice whether they come to Vega or not so we were worried that we hadn't done enough preparation we were worried that we'd done something that would scare all the all the birds off and then patrolling the island to keep away the predators that was a, a constant sort of stress to make sure that we were doing that right and collecting the and collecting the down. I mean, luckily we had such wonderful support from both the the family who had been on on Vega and also sort of the wider their wider family and the wider community as well. Lots of people to the island to help us in our first year to to show us what to do. And also because the Vega harvest is a sort of cultural event, you know, lots of people see it almost as a as part of their identity. You know, this is a this is Icelandic heritage. So you know, I hope they'll be back this year to help us as well. <laughs> and it was a lot harder than we expected. But then I think we almost 
had a I had a preconception that it would be harder than we could possibly expect. You know, these ducks can nest anywhere, literally anywhere. So you have to comb the island repeatedly, looking for these nests, uh, waiting to be the right time to harvest all the all down. So waiting for the eggs to hatch. But it was also more wonderful than I realised it was going to be. You know, there's just something about the simplicity of spending your days walking around a beautiful island um, and really getting to know not just the eider, but the puffin, the arctic terns, cormorants, the gulls, the oyster catchers, all the other types of, of wildlife and bird life that are on the island too, because you're in amongst them really observing their behaviour and observing what life is like for them on a, on a day-to-day basis. So it's, it's idyllic in so many ways. Tens of thousands of euros worth of eider down is collected So then you're really worried about the security of that. You know, is that going to get infested with something? Is it going to get damp, which would ruin it? Could the whole place go up in flames and it would be lost? But then you have to dry it out in the open on a sunny day. So, I mean, you can imagine eider down. It's so light and fluffy and you lay it out on the grass outside the farm to, to be dried by the sun in a place that's really exposed or in the middle of a fjord. So one gust of wind and all your down is out in the sea and lost. This year, we've got so many plans of how we can can do it better, uh, both for us and for the ducks. We joked a lot uh, when we moved to the island that it was a pretty perfect time to move to a small island in a remote part of an already remote country when the rest of the world was undergoing a global pandemic. But even our remote corner of the world wasn't totally unaffected. So our nearest fishing village, which is only about population 200, that they had cases of COVID there. So it wasn't completely untouched. But we have been incredibly aware all the way through this past year how fortunate we've been to be in isolation in lockdown on an island where we had so much more freedom because there was no danger of contamination or infecting anyone else uh, because it was just us we've signed up for a sort of longer experience of a type of isolation you know our lockdown if you like is not going to end at some point this year it's it's a lifestyle that we've committed to And there are elements of that, you know, from the very basic, you know, there's things that you miss. I I love sushi (laughs) and there's no way I can get sushi on that island or, you know, sometimes you you run out of something and, uh, you know, we we tend to not be able to get over to the mainland more than maybe once a fortnight, once a month. So, you know, you run out of fresh things. So we have plans to you know, grow more ourselves and make more ourselves. And, and I think that general simplifying of life and the contentment you get from knowing that you're have as, having a smaller impact as possibly can is perhaps a sentiment that has hit a wider range of people through this experience, through this lockdown us moving to this island is a fairly extreme way of, of doing that. But you know, there is a real sense of reward that comes from knowing that your water comes from a well that you have outside and you become acutely aware of the rubbish that you're generating because you have to sort and dispose of all that different rubbish and transport it to the right places. So if you start making more efforts from basic composting to you know reusing more and then being more careful about what you're buying in the first place uh, to generate that rubbish 
and then to you know how we choose to make our living out of something that is sustainable and in harmony with nature and and, and deepening that throughout you know our, our entire sort of financial structure and everything and how, what we choose to do in our lives um you know that that's been a really rewarding process and i think it's one that perhaps a lot more people in many different ways are going to are going to be thinking about as we come out of this lockdown and start moving into a future. That was Felicity Aston talking to us from Iceland. We'll be updating readers about new episodes of the podcast via our newsletter, so sign up in the link in our bio. Or for the full geographical experience, subscribe to our monthly print magazine, packed full of stories and stunning photography from across the globe. 